Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a billionaire investor and philanthropist who is concerned about the fate of democracy in the digital age. So we have this idea, as opposed to redistribution, pre-distribution. We also call it universal basic capital or universal basic assets. So you start your life owning a piece of everything, as opposed to having to fight through taxes to get a piece of the value that's being created. That was Nicholas Begruen, who came into the FT recently to talk about his book, Renovating Democracy, Governing in the Age of Globalization and Digital Capitalism. Welcome, Nicholas. I would like to start with these two big forces that are kind of roiling our world at the moment, globalization and digital capitalism. We hear a lot about the issues of globalization and its discontents, but I'm most intrigued by your take on digital capitalism. What is it in your definition and why is it problematic? Well, if you think about where the value is going, who's going to capture the value, meaning the economic value, more and more it's going in essence, to the algorithms, where the intellectual property is really where the value is going, and therefore capital itself, money, and labor is going to become and has become, frankly, less and less important. If you look at the most valuable companies in the world today, there are half a dozen in the U.S., a couple or maybe three in China, and they are technology businesses that were created with very little money, and employ relatively not that many people. And um, it tells you that the value is in the patents, the value is in the knowledge. It's not so much in the people, not so much in the capital itself. So that's a big, big shift. And do you think this is a new form of capitalism itself, or is it just a evolution of what has gone before? I think it's an evolution. The same way as you started with farming, then you had the Industrial Revolution. So different aspects of society became the most productive. At the beginning, you had land and labor. Then you had land, labor, and machines. And today, you don't need land that much. You need labor less and less. And the machines are becoming more and more sophisticated to the point where the machines are going to, at some point, make themselves. But this is a wonderful world, isn't it? You read Hans Rosling and Steven Pinker and see that everything is getting better on a global scale, that mortality rates have improved enormously, that poverty has decreased. Technology has been the enabler of all this. We are living better, richer, less violent lives than for centuries. So what problems are being caused by digital capitalism? So I think that's true, and I think it'll remain true over time. The issue is short term, and you can see that what's happening around the world in terms of, let's say, anxiety, in terms of political unrest, in terms of going back to roots almost everywhere, is, I think, a retrenchment from the speed of change, that's technology, multiculturalism, globalization. It's really a reaction to the fact that even though change is happening at a digital pace, we're still analog, we're still flesh as humans, and therefore I think it's maybe too fast. And the disruptions are serious, they're going to become probably more serious. But long term, this is very good news because in essence, we're going to get machines to do the work that we do that'll free us up. But the transition may not be that easy. And 
not only is the transition not that easy, it's also going to shift wealth and power more and more towards the machines. So whoever owns the IP, whoever owns the machines, is going to be sort of the ultimate winner. And therefore, sort of winners and losers are going to be more divided. You almost go back to very old days where very few people had all the chips. The question is, how do you make this fair? Because there's no reason why it shouldn't be fair. It can, but you have to redesign the system. Right. Let's plunge into that. How are we going to redesign the system? As you're saying, it's not necessarily a problem of the technology itself. It's the political economy that has to adapt to that new technology. What do you think we need to do? You have two aspects to this. There's the political aspect and there's the economic aspect. The political aspect is that everyone, especially in the age of networks and communication, everyone will want to have a voice and it can express themselves. And it's happening more and more. So people are going to want to participate in political decisions and they will feel that they may have to because the world is changing and they want to be part of it. So how do you do that? in a way that still brings people together. And that's, I think, the transition that democracies are going through right now. So participation potentially can increase. The question is, how do you do it? Do you do everything through direct voting, referendums, and all that? That could be very chaotic. Or do you give a voice to citizens through things like citizens, assemblies, committees that can consult on matters and inform the public, inform the government, inform the bureaucrats as to different measures, you still need a decision mechanism. So do you let the elected officials or do you let the administration, government help steer society? These are the difficult and important questions on the political side. Just on that, I mean, the increased participation is not necessarily an unqualified good if, as you write in the book, we're living in a polarised world. We're just going to have two sides screaming at each other at higher volume, aren't we? So how do we translate the benefits of participation, the positive impulse from that into effective action? That's going to be the key. That's going to be how you build a future. You've got to be able to federate all these voices in a way that's constructive. So giving everyone a voice is great, but should it be in a way that's elections and contests, or should it be in ways where people come together as citizens, they look at an issue, and a little bit like a jury, you bring people together, let's say a dozen or two dozens on a subject, have them discuss and think about an issue or issues behind closed doors, and they come up with recommendations, good, not so good. We did this actually at the Institute in California. We put together something called Think Long Committee for California, where we had a dozen Republicans and Democrats to discuss all the key issues that would face the state of California. And they came up with recommendations that were, I think, pretty sensible. And even though they had very different opinions, they came together because if you bring people in one room, no matter who they are and how polarized, as humans, they'll come up with solutions. We as humans have survived and prospered because we cooperate. We're cooperative creatures. There are times when we fight. That's fine. It's maybe even healthy, but you need to find a way to bring people together, edit in essence, and then inform the public, inform the government, inform the elected officials in a way that's constructive. And do you think that consensus can survive outside the room? It's a little harder, but if you get advice, if you get information from these groups, 
I think over time, people will tend to respect their fellow citizens and hear them out at least. And not every issue will then have to be fought or debated. That doesn't mean that there won't be fights and there won't be polarization, but it may be less toxic than it appears today. In your book, you also have some quite admiring sections about China and the long-term governance that it has instituted. And you have this one quite striking quote, if the West does not hear this wake-up call loud and clear, it is destined to somnambulate into second-class status on the world stage. And that's in reference to the Chinese position. Do you think they've got it right in China? Well, it's the first time that we in the West have real competition. And I don't think it's going away. And what China has is a model that we culturally couldn't adopt, wouldn't want to adopt. But what China has done is has been able to enable a very vibrant, very strong private sector, civil society, and a strong government. And they both work together. They have no choice, frankly. We in the West have a very vibrant private sector, civil society. And our governments are getting weaker and weaker. Less resources are going there. And the cooperation between government and civil society is also weakening. That, I think, puts us at a disadvantage. And it's hard to build a future if you don't cooperate. So at some point, we have to find a way to feel good about our governments, empower them, bring resources and talent into government, as opposed to most of the talent to the private sector. So that is where China, I think, has, let's say, an advantage today. We have the advantage that we can change and we have flexibility. And long term, we might just be happier because it's an environment that gives the individual uh, a chance to flourish. And um, I think that's our long term advantage. But short term, we should really pay attention to the fact that we've gotten to strengthen society as a whole. And that doesn't mean just civil society or the government. We need both strong. All right, let's go back to the economic challenges and uh, remedies. What do you propose? How can we tackle this issue of unfair distribution of the fruits of economic growth? So, as we talked about, most of the value increasingly is accruing to the intellectual properties. That's the robots. So the robots is where the value is going. So the question then is, what do you do about it? You tax the robots. You tax the people who own you know, the increasingly valuable digital goods. And what it does, it'll create the same environment we're in today, which is a fight between the haves and have-nots and trying to tax the people who own the digital rights so that it's fair. And that's quite toxic. Our idea is, as opposed to taxing the robots, why not own the robots? Why not share the wealth? So we have this idea, as opposed to redistribution, pre-distribution. We also call it universal basic capital or universal basic assets. So you start your life owning a piece of everything, as opposed to having to fight through taxes to get a piece of the value that's being created. So what does that mean, you start your life owning something? I mean, a concrete example would be, let's say tomorrow you start a business, and let's say that business becomes Google. Well, as opposed to you owning, let's say, 100% of it, you own 70% of it. It won't make much of a difference to you. You'll become a rich. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Google will be very successful. But the 30% that you don't own would be owned by society as a whole, meaning everyone. And the advantage of that is that everybody then is a winner if Google is a winner. That means the government itself. Normally, the government is a debtor, so at least they become rich too. But the government is really there on behalf of citizens. So you would put the shares in big sovereign wealth fund, which then, in essence, would be the property of citizens. You could, through blockchain these days, even attribute shares to every individual. That doesn't mean that they could trade them, but in theory, a portion of it could be something that you could get dividends on, cash from, depending on where you are in your life, what your needs are. But most importantly, everybody is an owner of the success of digital invention, as opposed to being on one side or the other side. And I think that's where we potentially should go so that we are on the same boat as opposed to some in the water and some in the boat. Now, you live on the west coast of America. How do you think your neighbours in California would react to that proposal? Well, I think that it's one of the things we're going to potentially test in California because California is almost a laboratory in terms of capitalism and democracy. And the state has to rethink its tax regime. So one of the things might be, in lieu of taxes, the government could take shares of new companies being created. I think that talent and venture capitalists would continue to flock to California because there's so much of it there. It makes no difference, as I said, if you own 100% or somewhat less of a business that you create. And I think that people would feel much more included as opposed to not in the success of what has made California so prosperous. I mean, a lot of people would say that we can really distribute that wealth that has been created through straight taxation, through the corporate taxation. So we tax Google higher than we are at the moment, but also we are indirectly getting a lot of the benefits of that growth from capital gains that is then taxed and redistributed through tax as well. So is the current system broken, do you think, or just not functioning as well as it could do, or you think it needs a fundamental rethink? You're right. In theory, it has a similar effect, but I think psychologically it's very different. You feel very different if you are part of the journey, if you're an owner, as opposed to if you're on the other side, sort of fighting or begging for money. That's number one. Number two, taxes, as we know, pretty inefficient. You can avoid them. There are lots of different things that, with time, uh, make the tax system perverse. If you own a piece of something, it's much cleaner and psychologically, I think, much more powerful. So then the individual also has a stake in the success of these enterprises as well. He becomes... Uh, a owner of that growth rather than just skimming off the tax at the top, as it were. That's right. Everyone is an owner. Everyone is part of the digital future, which I think over time is going to be irresistible. What is wrong with the concept of universal basic income, which is clearly the other big idea that people have? I think it's a tool, potentially. So it's not necessarily a bad tool, but I think it's limited. And I also think it creates perverse incentives because, again, it's a transfer of money, as opposed to really a sense of ownership, a sense of a common destiny. 
Do you think, I mean, there's clearly a big debate at the moment about too much concentration of power. And a lot of these companies are taking too big a share of the pie and should therefore be broken up. How does that fit into your view of the world? I think at some point that's true. I think some of these companies have become extraordinarily not just valuable and powerful, but they've become essential parts of our lives. Some of these networks in sort of, let's call them digital aids that we use, are sort of an extension of us. They're like a family member, but an indispensable one. So they're incredibly valuable. The fact that we have such a distance between our society as government and these companies is quite extraordinary. Now, you could say that's been very good. It's enabled innovation. They would have never been created and grown as quickly if they weren't where they were. I think that's probably true. But at some point, they become almost like air, like energy, like food, like, you know, all the essentials that makes one's life. So do you need to regulate them? Do you need to break them up? One should certainly look at it. One of the interesting aspects of the proposal of pre-distribution, if, let's say, 30% of every new business is owned by a sovereign wealth fund for the benefit of society, you could very well say that up to a threshold, no political rights are associated with it, but maybe above a threshold, you know, a high threshold, very high threshold, maybe political rights come with it. So that way, if it becomes so important, so valuable, well, then society has a say, not just the business managers. So how would the owners of this company exercise political rights? This all has to be thought through. You don't want to stifle entrepreneurship and capitalism in terms of its, let's say, dynamic forces. And therefore, you want to have the economic rights. Let's say businesses are owned 30% by society. You want to have the economic rights accrue to society. In terms of political rights, they should be with the entrepreneurs, the management, the shareholders, as any other business. But if they become so important, so powerful, that they're vital to society, maybe above a certain threshold in terms of value, in terms of size, but I would only have very few in that group, then you would maybe say that the stake that's owned by society carries political rights, meaning that society, if they have a 30% stake, would have 30% political rights. So in finance, we talk about systemically important institutions. You think almost if we define these companies as societally important institutions, then the social owners of those companies ought to have greater political rights over how they run. Right. After you know, a threshold of probably importance, maturity, connectivity to society in general. But that would include people like Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon, would it? Probably today. In one section of your book, you also talk about the destructive social effects of some of these social networks in terms of they are incentivizing virality rather than spreading the truth. What can we do about that? How do we ensure that we have a better discourse in public? Well, again, it's a question of standards. So the companies are self-regulating as slowly as they can because it's not in their nature. But truth, the quality of the information, the quality of the data, when it becomes so important to everybody's life, is essential. So you need to have certain standards and you need to make sure that these standards, a little bit like the quality of water, very important. The fact that you get electricity 24 hours a day if you need it, these are essential security. So this is no different. If I could just go back to the issue of tax, Rutger Bregman, who was a Dutch historian and a previous guest on Tectonic, made quite a splash in Davos where he said the obvious answer really is 
just to tax people. And it's fascinating that recently, I think 18 very rich people in America have written this open letter saying, we want to pay more tax, we want to contribute more to society. Did you support that initiative? Did you sign that letter? Or do you think the rich should be pay more tax in America? I think it's inevitable that as value is going to be more and more concentrated because of you know the digital world we live in, that there's going to be pressure to tax the ones who have much more and to transfer wealth from one side to the other. But as I said, this is after the fact. It's a fight, quite toxic. And why not turn things around, make everyone a beneficiary, an owner from the beginning, so that if there is a great success, everybody is part of it, as opposed to fighting for it. And you also argue that there are some politicians who get the way that the debate is going, Emmanuel Macron in France and Justin Trudeau in Canada, and that they are understanding this new digital world and that they are responding to it in positive ways. Both of them clearly have had their big challenges and problems recently, but what are they doing right, do you think, that others can learn from? Well, I think they're open-minded. They have a better sense, frankly, they're also younger, about what the world looks like. And they're willing to push for change. But as you can see in France with uh, Emmanuel Macron, as soon as he tried to effect some changes, and he was elected with a big majority, he has a big majority in parliament, as soon as he started trying to make changes, protests more than 20 weekends in a row in France, everywhere. So it tells you how difficult it is to make changes in democracies how difficult it is to make changes to a social contract that has worked pretty well, not perfectly, but pretty well over decades now. But if you don't change, you don't progress, and the world changes without you. We can't stop change, so we have to be able to adapt. Change is painful. At the same time, it needs to be as fair as possible. And I think that's where politicians you know, need to navigate. It's been fascinating over the past few months to watch how the environment has become such a massive political uh, rallying cry and Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion have really forced, I think, a lot of European governments in particular into moving a lot faster and further than they were previously doing. Is that a good example, do you think, of participatory democracy where people can push the agenda themselves rather than waiting for formal parties to take the initiative for them? Well, at some point, I think it's healthy that people in mass, you know, voice their wants because politics, in truth, and not entirely surprisingly, is slower than change in real society. We talked about all the digital technologies. They were way ahead of anything that any government understood or has reacted to. And that's not surprising. So I think society needs to signal to governments and politicians what their needs and wants really are. And climate, frankly, we are slow. We are very late. Final question. Are you optimistic that we're going to get this right? And if so, what gives you optimism? Well, I am optimistic. I think, number one, we have no choice. We have to find solutions. We have to adapt to change. And I think the change is going to be much more massive and it's happening at an exponential rate. The question is, are we hitting a pause button now? Not just in the West, but all around the world in terms of becoming more conservative, in terms of wanting to control the speed of change. And it seems to be that way today. So globalization, even maybe technological progress, will be slowed down for a period of time. But long term, I think it'll happen. We just have to be prepared. We have to think of solutions that are fairly bold, out of the box. And we have to make sure that technology ends up being our friend, because at some point, it could become toxic. I mean, nuclear power can go both ways. 
artificial intelligence, gene editing can go both ways. Climate has been affected, it seems, by humans, so we've got to get ahead of that. But that's where I think technology can also be a source of good. It'll force us to find cleaner ways to produce everything we need to produce. Ultimately, it'll be a benefit, but we need to push it. And therefore, we need to have eyes open. We need to not fear, but actually invest time-wise and mentally in solutions. All right. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simons.